we are the ones who have to believe without seeing because you and I are not going to put our hands in his side. We can't do that. He's not here. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 81st episode of Working with the Word. In today's episode, we are discussing Jesus' resurrection from John chapter 20. All four of the Gospels record Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but each one has a different focus or angle that they are observing from. And this is certainly the case in John's presentation of the resurrection. In this chapter, we're going to see that he shows us the resurrection from three different perspectives. The perspective of the disciples, perspective of Mary Magdalene, and finally, as we often call him, perspective of doubting Thomas. Before we jump into our interpretation and application, we want to remind you to grab your own Bible, open it up, and read through and observe the chapter on your own first. And if you want to, you can listen to me read it back in episode 78, around the 12 and a half minute mark, to the 1650-minute mark. So here in these first 10 verses of John chapter 20, we're introduced to the awareness of the fact that something has happened to Jesus' body as some folks are coming to the tomb, beginning with this woman we see in verse 20 as Mary Magdalene. There are a lot of Marys throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, who's the sister of Lazarus. There's this Mary here who seems to be not a last name, but a reference to the town that she's from, who we haven't really seen a lot in the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. Just a brief mention in John chapter 19 and verse 25, the fact that she was there at the cross when Jesus is crucified, as well as maybe some implications that she was there at the burial as well. And a very significant fact that is talked about in the Gospel of Luke that she was a follower of Jesus who had seven demons cast out. So maybe one of these people who, when the crowds were brought to Jesus and people were having demons cast out, maybe she's one of these people who had this number of demons cast out and her life changed as she's then following the Lord. And so while she comes to the tomb early on the first day of the week, while it's still dark, she is there along with other women, as we know from the other gospels. And in verse two, there she talks about the fact that We don't know where the body of the Lord has gone. She's there to bring spices that would have been used to finish the burial process of preserving the body of Jesus. Since due to the quick approaching Sabbath from the end of chapter 19, Joseph and Nicodemus probably weren't able to finish that whole process. Or maybe there's more to that whole burial custom and process of when, uh, I don't know if they're necessarily embalming would be the right phrase, but just using those spices to help with the body in some way. Uh, And whether this is from the guards or whether it's just she's not thinking about the resurrection, when she arrives at the tomb and realizes that the tomb is empty, you know, that's concerning. We saw in the end of the last chapter that they knew where they put Jesus' body. There were no other, you know, people within this tomb. And so if you go to that tomb, you're expecting that you're going to have that stone rolled away and Jesus' body will be there. And it seems like that. You know, the stone has already been removed from the tomb, and she goes and says, you know, we don't know where the Lord is, where his body is, or I don't know where they've taken him. I kind of referenced a second ago the fact that maybe some of the guards of the tomb 
had said something about how his body had been taken away. In Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew 28, some of that's talked about of the need for guards so that Mm -hmm. way the disciples wouldn't take the body. Or when the body is gone because Jesus truly is risen, the guards being like, oh, you know, what do we do now? And the Jews saying, just say that the disciples took him and we'll go from there. But Mary in that moment is not thinking resurrection of Jesus' physical body at this point. She goes and gets Peter, and then the other disciple as well, probably John being talked about there. And they arrive on the scene, not to a grave robbery, whereas if there's been some type of hasty removal of the body, but they notice the fact that the body is gone. There's that kind of humorous part within all of this about Peter and John running to the tomb together, but the fact that I guess that John maybe didn't have as heavy as a breakfast or something because he got to the tomb (laughs) first or just is faster. But he stands outside and Peter goes in first and realizes that, you know, all the wrappings are there and John notices this too. So you have two of them going to see, but over kind of off to the side, it's talked about the linen cloth, or I think some versions will say the napkin that would have been around his head has been folded up. Unless you're a grave robber with like severe OCD, and I don't know, obviously this is kind of meant to be a humorous point, a grave robber is not going to take the time to fold up a head covering and place it off to the side. They're going to either pull out the whole body or they're going to, you know, probably kind of make a mess as they leave. And so that probably catches their attention there a little bit. It's just impressive how much the level of detail is recorded here. It's just those little things that are sticking out. Absolutely. We're going to see this detail from the previous chapters and here and in the next chapter as well that John is really emphasizing with all of this to show that with Peter and John and Mary as well, that's sufficing for kind of the two or more witnesses that would be needed to say, you know, we can back this up. It wasn't just Mary by herself, you know, thinking she saw this, but Peter and John and Mary as she actually went in the tomb could testify to all this. Mary's going to have a lot more to testify to in just a little bit. Now, at this point, they're surely thinking maybe some about what Jesus had told them about the fact that he would rise from the dead, something that doesn't seem like it was really hinted to as strongly in John's gospel compared to maybe the synoptics, where you have those multiple times where Jesus will say something to the effect of, we're going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be crucified, but he's going to rise on the third day. But they've been told that, and it's true that it says that John saw and believed, but there's still a lack of understanding here. That point is made in verse 9. And so at this point, they can all at least agree that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Or we could say that the tomb is empty. But what is that about? What's What do we make of all of this? Well, there's more to learn from the rest of the chapter that's coming. And so Peter and John leave the tomb and they return, surely not keeping quiet in all of this, uh, as one person I saw a reading had noted John goes back to his house and Peter, if that's where the disciples are huddled up or wherever, you know, telling Jesus' mother that, hey, something's happened to your son's body. And it's already getting some very interesting conversation rolling for what's going on around Jesus' body here. That is much more interesting once we get into Mary's perspective moving forward. Yeah, so picking up in verse 11, we come back to Mary. We saw her at the very beginning of the chapter. She's the, the one that came and told Peter and John, but then the scene shifts back to Mary. She stays there at the tomb in verse 11, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So instead of going home, she's there and you just see the emotions 
pouring out of her. We've talked about how difficult emotionally this would have been the last several days with Jesus being arrested and and tried and then crucified. And then now his body has com- completely disappeared. There's yeah. fear, there's confusion, disappointment, anxiety, and grief. And so she's just staying there and it's, and it's all coming out. And I find it interesting, the things that kind of like with Peter and John emphasizing what they saw, it also emphasizes what Mary saw. In verse 11, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. So she also looked into the tomb, saw that it was empty except for two angels. And right there, you sh- you know, it's easy for us to say she should have recognized something <laughs> is going on here. But again, this is a this is something that doesn't happen every day. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 14, she turns and sees Jesus standing there. She doesn't recognize him, verse 14. She did not know that it was Jesus. But she sees evidences that, that there's something going on here. And it's interesting that she doesn't recognize Jesus because it's not like she didn't know who he was. It calls to mind another resurrection appearance in Luke chapter 24, Jesus walks with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And I don't know this for sure, but it seems to me that at least there, it was some sort of divine prevention. You know, Jesus somehow was preventing them until he sat down with them and broke bread. And maybe the same thing's going on right here. I don't I don't know that for sure. It could have been that she was just kind of glancing at him, thinking he was the gardener out of the corner of her eye. Maybe she's just overcome with grief, not even lifting her head. But her first thought is not, oh, Jesus was raised from the dead. And like what you were pointing out from the beginning, mm-hmm. that was not her first thought. Her first thought was somebody has moved his body. So she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And at that point, she recognizes him. What is it about the way he says her name? I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe whatever was preventing her from seeing him or recognizing him was lifted at this point. Regardless, it's clear that she is just overcome with joy. She yeah. says in Hebrew, Rabboni. She probably exclaims this, not with a boring <laughs> statement. Oh, this is the teacher. No, this is the teacher. <laughs> this is the one. And she physically clings to him. As Jesus indicates in verse 17, stop clinging to me. She is grabbing him. She is holding on to him, maybe worshiping at his feet. And so you see her unspeakable grief is transitioned to inexpressible joy. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen in chapter 16 when he was talking to his apostles. Chapter 16, verse 22, therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And we're starting to see that here, their grief turning to joy. What Jesus says to her in verse 17, I think is really interesting. He gives her instructions. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he says, I I don't want you to hold on to me right now. I want you to go and tell other people about this, because the time has not come for me to be ascended to the Father. And then he says, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. The way he gives her these instructions, he identifies himself with them. He calls them his brethren, his brothers. He calls God 
his father and their father. Like, like they're on the same equal plane as Jesus and my God and your God. Now, obviously, Jesus is the son of God and yeah. he is the son in a much greater way than you and I are as his children. But it just, it just strikes me here how Jesus identifies himself with his people here as one of them. And again, it just calls to mind chapter 1, verse 14, when John tells us that the word became flesh. He became one of us. He didn't just look down and say, you know, I'm up here and you're down there. No, he, he came down and became one of us. So just even, even that stands out even in his instructions. Mm-hmm. If we kind of back up and, and look at this whole section about Mary as a whole, Mary really builds our faith when you think about the resurrection appearances and defending that. I I know that this is not an episode about apologetics or anything, but it's been on my mind recently just because I've been teaching a study on it, just recently finished on that. When you look at the context, the historical context of Mary being the first witness of the resurrection, the very first person to carry the news that Jesus was raised, that she had actually seen him, that is really significant. There's a popular idea today that the resurrection accounts were just made up by the disciples over time. And as their stories circulated, the real facts became overshadowed by fiction. And so the, the resurrection accounts aren't really eyewitness testimony. They're not intended to be historical accounts. They're more just legend. But it's significant that Jesus specifically chose Mary Magdalene to be the first witness because women were not regarded as reliable witnesses in Jewish culture. Josephus in one of his writings mentions how they're very fickle, they're emotionally driven, and he says that they should not even be allowed in court because they will let their emotions kind of take over. And yeah. people might be offended to, to learn that today, but, but that's the way they thought of it back then. Mm-hmm. And so if the disciples were making this up as they go, or if they were just spreading the news and other people were kind of adding other things and just became legend, they would not have had Mary as their first witness. Not only is she a woman, she's a woman that came from a really, really rough background. She had seven demons (laughs) that once controlled her life. Making that up would have really hurt their case. It's more likely, just from a logical perspective, that this was not made up. Rather, this is just embarrassing material, so to speak, that was actually factual. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that Mary is the first witness is important to understanding that this is really a real account here. As we go forward in the chapter, we see it's not just Mary who's a witness, but Jesus continues to show himself to other of his disciples. Right. We see at the end of that section where Mary goes to the disciples and says, I've seen the Lord. And she tells them, you know, what Jesus has told her, and they listen to her. But in verse 19, we read the start of this section. It was evening in that first day of the week. The disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. After a full day of hiding, and it's now evening, probably hiding because of there's that thought in their mind of you know, what just happened to Jesus a few days ago. Maybe things calmed down because of the Passover and Sabbath. But what will happen to those people who not only followed 
and promoted, but also taught what Jesus said. You know, one of those guys who maybe even tried to kill somebody or cut off somebody's ear <laughs> from all of that. We have passages from John seventeen thirteen, or kind of a similar idea in John twelve forty two about people who are afraid of having themselves associated with Jesus because of how other Jewish leaders were kind of controlling or manipulating people, whether, as it said in one place, as if they were going to ban them from the synagogue or just kind of, a, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to have that similar reputation. And so, yeah, the disciples are kind of hunkered down for a little while. And then all of a sudden, boom, Jesus appears in that moment. It's, again, specific details are mentioned that doors are locked. And then Jesus came and stood among them. How did he do that? Did he, you know, Tom Cruise down through the ceiling Mission Impossible style? Did he pick a lock and, like, throw a rock to get to the distraction from looking out a window? The implication is that, you know, he miraculously showed up. Some people will use the phrase that, you know, somehow he, like, walked through the wall or walked through the door. I'm not comfortable to make that assured statement, but he's Mm -hmm. there in the room now. And he begins with, peace be with you. Uh, I don't know if I would have felt a whole lot of peace if I thought someone was dead and all of a sudden stood among me, you know. But as they see him and as he's speaking with them, Jesus presents the evidence that it is him. It's not a body double. You know, it's not Jesus's, you know, doppelganger from somewhere else in Palestine. You know, supposedly we all have that lookalike person somewhere around the world. This is not some doppelganger. This is not just some, you know, crash dummy that was actually thrown on the cross, so Jesus didn't actually die. He's with them, and he's got the holes in his hand, and he's got the hole in his side that he mm-hmm. shows to them. As is kind of referred to later, without getting too far into Thomas, I don't know, like I wonder, Peter being Peter, did he take his finger and just like stick it in there? Um, you know, <laughs> it kind of maybe implied that some of that happened that showed it's me. And so... It's very close to go time is basically what Jesus is telling his disciples here on this first day of the week. He's encouraging them, looking to give them peace. A few statements he says here in verse 21 and 22 and 23, we want to just briefly make some comments about. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It seems that Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm sending you to go and tell the world what God has done for mankind to receive salvation from their sins. Go and let people know that I have died on the cross for their sins, but I have been risen again and overcome death so that they can overcome death. Maybe going along with they need to repent, they need to believe in me, maybe implications of baptism as well. And we just see from Matthew and Mark and from Luke also. Along with this section, though, in verse 22, one of our first interesting phrases or first interesting things to happen within this section, it says, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. There's deeper Greek things than I can get into. I think similar to what words for like breath and spirit and wind are all kind of in the same language. So maybe there's something going on with a little bit of wordplay or thought with that. But at least a question pops up into our mind of the fact that, well, I thought he said earlier in John 14, 15, 16, that the Spirit would come after, you know, he was gone, that he would go away and then the Spirit would come. And just thinking ahead to Acts chapter 2, we have that statement of Jesus having told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and the Spirit, to use one 
way of phrasing it falls on them on the day of Pentecost or fills them day of Pentecost. He makes that point in Acts chapter 1. He makes that point in Luke 24. Wait in Jerusalem for when the mm-hmm. Spirit will arrive. It seems like he is fulfilling what he promised, and there's this kind of stage of things. It's that I, I told Emerson I'm not going to get too rambly in this section, so I'm going to try to not do that. But there does need to be a reminder of the fact that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been involved since before time began within the universe in some way. It does seem from what Jesus has been talking about, though, the Father has sent him and that he is doing his part now is telling those disciples that they're going to have the Spirit with them. One way to phrase this is just as best as thought. is It appears to be kind of a foretaste of what's to come, of when the Spirit will fall on them in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Maybe similar to the way in Luke chapter 24 that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, the ways that he's fulfilled them. Maybe some of that's happening here and that happening more fully in Acts chapter 2. The next part that comes from all of this in verse 23, he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. You know, there's this immediate question of, do they just get some like super authority within the kingdom? <laughs> did Jesus just give up his authority to forgive sins, or did Jesus give special authority in that way? It doesn't appear to be the teaching of the fact that like individual men or that churches have the ability to forgive people of their sins. In other gospel accounts, we read about you know the man whose friends lower him through ceiling, and Jesus tells him to your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are all up in arms because you know only God can forgive sins, and Jesus sticks with that and makes that point. Um, it doesn't seem to be Jesus is saying that now these men are going to be like God and have that ability. But rather, as the apostles are going to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus, men and women who respond to that gospel will have their sins forgiven. And if they choose to not respond to that gospel, their sins will remain with them. And when judgment day comes, those sins will be taken into account and God will deal justly and righteously however people have responded to the gospel. Similar idea to what we read in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, when he told the apostles they'd be given the keys to the kingdom. The CSB Everyday Study Bible has a statement on this that says, Jesus bestowed on his followers authority to announce access or disembarment from God's kingdom based on reception or denial of the gospel message. So this is not just, you know, one day Matthew's going to get mad at somebody as he's preaching and say, you know what, you're condemned. He's going to like zap them into that or like someone's going to buy Matthew's favor and all of that. So Emerson, it looks like you're about to... Help me out a little bit as we're wrapping this section up. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a difficult part, and I think you did a great job in explaining. I just wanted to, you mentioned Matthew 16, verse 19, where Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's a similar idea, again, just emphasizing that Peter is not unlocking something God hasn't already. Right. He's just opening a door that God has already opened or shutting what God has already opened. The authority is, is really God's. It's coming from him. And however we factor the Holy Spirit into that, I think we would have to take that in context with what Jesus promised his disciples in, in John uh, 16 about the helper, the comforter. And he said that the helper would come 
and would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment in chapter 16, verse 8. And when we were there, I think we were talking about that and how primarily that's through the message of the gospel, mm-hmm. that that's how the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the disciples, obviously a big part of that is they would reveal the, the word. So yeah, I, I think you did a good job of explaining that really that really hard part. Like you were saying, it's a, it's a foretaste of what's to come in the sense of the Holy Spirit will, will come more fully in Acts chapter 2, mm-hmm. but there's obviously some giving of the Holy Spirit right here. Yeah. So two quick things to wrap up this section. Number one, particularly in verses 21 through 23, if it's complete opposite thinking on our audience part, maybe you're listening to this and thinking, I approach that differently, and you want to tell us why you approach that differently, then stick to the end for when we give our contact information and feel free to write to us or just to think I haven't thought about that and to study into some of those things more. Number two, I think what we really want to emphasize about this section is the fact that the disciples saw Jesus's risen body. You know, we can get stuck in some of those weedy passages, which at times need our attention. What we really want to emphasize here, Mary has seen the risen Jesus. The 10 at this point have seen the risen Jesus. And then that's going to be important for what they're going to do as they go out and preach the gospel moving forward. But that's true that it's just the 10 here. And we've referred to the 11 for a while because of Judas and all of his uh, issues. We can use that word for now. But (laughs) why are we just talking about the 10 here, Emerson? Well, we're talking about just the 10 because Thomas was not with them when Jesus first appeared to the disciples gathered together on that day. In verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And it's interesting, I just now noticed this. We're, we're referring to the 10 or the 11. But in verse 24, John is still referring to them as the 12. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, just accommodatively for our understanding. Finally, Jesus appears to Thomas, who was not present whenever he first appeared. I want to say something about Thomas because he, a lot of times he gets a, a bad rap because we know him as doubting Thomas. If we only remember him from this one incident, then we're not really seeing him as he really is. You mm-hmm. remember in chapter 11, verse 16, when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. He was speaking very metaphorically, and yeah. they misunderstood him. Thomas said, look, I'm ready to go die with Jesus. Let, let's Come on, let's go. Let's go die with Jesus. You see his courage and zeal and faith there. You know, if we, if we only remember these characters through one incident, we forget that they're not one-dimensional They're not defined by one trait only. And that's so true of every single person. We're not defined by just one thing that happens to us. We're defined by the whole of our character. So having said that, that's a little bit of my soapbox. (laughs) Uh, We we refer to him as Doubting Thomas because he doubted. You know, from Thomas's perspective, he wanted to have the same evidence that his fellow disciples had. And so he said to his other disciples, the other disciples, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There's a part of him that is just being stubborn here. But I don't think that's necessarily wrong for him to say this. And the reason I say that is, number one, Jesus never expects us to just believe blindly without any evidence at all. 
we've seen that in the Gospel of John already. He says in chapter 10, verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe. <laughs> so he gives evidence, and that factors into number two. Jesus gave the ten disciples the exact same evidence that Thomas demanded. In verse mm -hmm. 20, the disciples saw his hands and his side. So they saw what Thomas wanted to see. Jesus gave them that. You know, we a lot of times are really hard on Thomas, but he's he's the kind of guy that needs evidence, and sometimes we're we're that way. When Jesus does appear eight days later, verse 27, he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So he gave him the evidence. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus does two things here. First of all, he commends Thomas's faith. I was reading from the New American Standard there. Verse 29, it translates that first statement as a question. Have you believed? And I believe the Christian Standard Bible has it as a statement. Because mm -hmm. you have seen me, you have believed. I think there he's commending Thomas's faith. You believe me, and that's good. But then the second statement, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So he challenges Thomas's faith. A good way to summarize this, the best as I can do, is he's saying, you believe because of the miraculous sign you see, but will you believe when you cannot see? And Jeff, I think you made this point when we were talking about this chapter earlier. In chapter one, Jesus is talking to Nathaniel and he says to him, do you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You're, you're going to see greater works than these. Mm -hmm. Essentially, he's saying, you know, it's, it's good that you believe in me because of this miraculous sign that you've just witnessed. But there's greater things that will, will come. And so I, this, this is really the, the climax of the book of John. Because this is the, the greatest sign that Jesus ever did was his resurrection. And Thomas... His confession in verse 28 is exactly the, the point of the book, that Jesus is Lord and God. Mm -hmm. He believes not just the resurrection happened, but he believes in Jesus as the risen Lord and God. And so that's really what John wants us to do, is, is to have that same kind of conviction and faith and trust and obedience. And John is challenging us with this story to, to take the evidence here and say what Thomas said, and follow in the disciples' footsteps. That leads us to our, so what, the application of this, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We have gone back to those two verses over and over throughout this study of John, because this is what it's all about. It's about the conviction that Jesus is who he said he was. All of the themes of John are kind of wrapped up tightly in this golden nugget here in verses 30 and 31. You've got the mention of signs that point us to reality. You have the idea of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You have eternal life being given to those that believe. And so as John is wrapping up this chapter, 
Obviously, they didn't have chapter divisions back there, but I think this is a good chapter division at the end of this. We are the ones who have to believe without seeing like Thomas did. Because you and I are not going to touch his hands, put our hands in his side. We can't do that. He's not here physically. What John is doing is he's writing down this evidence for us. Faith calls for reason and evidence. Absolutely. We need reason. We need evidence. Without that, we're just believing blindly. And John provides this faith and evidence abundantly if we'll read and consider it honestly. However, and I think this is really the point Jesus is making, faith doesn't just call for reason and evidence. It calls for trust and obedience. Trust in something you can't see because of what you do see. That's something that rational evidence alone can't provide. You can show someone all the evidence in the world for anything, whether it's 2 plus 2 is 4, or whether it's Jesus' resurrection. And even with all the evidence presented, you can't force someone to believe it. Faith is is a choice we must still make. And I think that's what John is telling us. That's ultimately what Jesus was showing his disciples is, you can see the evidence here, but you have to take that evidence and you have to use it to build a trust and obedience. And that's the kind of faith that leads to life in his name. So for our challenge for this episode, we want you to think about the resurrection. I think about when we had Rick Ligon on quite a while ago now by this Mm -hmm. point. I remember him talking about how just every person, whether you're a believer or not, should at least at some point in their life spend time seriously considering, did Jesus really rise from the dead and is the tomb really empty? Mm -hmm. So we want you to think about that today. Assuming that probably many of you are already believers who are tuning into our podcast, we want you to think about this question. What about the resurrection, especially as it's recorded in John, encourages you to believe Jesus is the Son of God and that you have a sure hope of eternal life with him? I'm kind of thinking of maybe a similar idea to 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Well, think about if that question is posed to you as... I'll be considering that question, and Emerson will be considering that question. We want you to consider that question about the resurrection, what we see here that helps us to strengthen our faith, to deepen our faith, to just start our faith, even, at this point, and looking at this particular chapter. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Next week, we will cover John chapter 21, the last chapter in John, which is kind of an appendix to the Gospel of John showing more resurrection appearances and more teachings of Jesus. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Mm